is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. This week on SITREP, in Afghanistan, Sangin's been handed over to U.S. control. The British troops who performed so incredibly in Sangin, uh, they did not give their lives in vain. They have done brilliant work. We will never forget what they did. The Liberal Democrats vote to push for a review on Trident and how GPs are being advised to care for military veterans. BFBS. Headlines. been the scene of some of the bloodiest fighting for British troops in Afghanistan and this week after four years the control of Sangin was finally handed over to the Americans. The MOD insists huge progress has been made but the price was very high. One third of all British deaths in Afghanistan have been in Sangin. As British forces prepared to leave the area Afghanistan went to the polls in its parliamentary election. Once again there were threats from the Taliban and killings on polling day. Fewer than half of Afghans voted. From Afghanistan, Kath Brazier reports on a significant week for Afghanistan and for British forces there. Sangin has been described as the most dangerous place on earth and the British death toll there would certainly seem to support that. British troops have worked hard to set up patrol bases and cleared and held the area with patrols. A number of these PBs will now be closed, something outgoing British troops find very frustrating and some even feel that all their hard work is going to waste. James Kelly's been in Sangin with 40 Commando Royal Marines. The amount of effort, time, lives lost... I do feel a little bit hollow that we didn't break this place. We didn't bring it to our way of thinking. I, I feel a little bit heartbroken that we didn't finish it. However, I'm 100% sure the Yanks will. Military commanders, though, argue that the handover makes perfect military sense. There are almost twice as many American troops in theatre than British. And if you look at history, this move is part of a pattern. The British handed over the town of Musakala in March this year, and later on the US Marines took charge of Kajaki. British troops are being concentrated along the central belt of Helmand, the most densely populated part of the province. Major General Richard Mills will now be in charge of Sangin and its surrounding area, and he recognises 
criticises the good job British troops have done. They're leaving it in good shape. They have uh, carved out a very uh, solid security bubble that we are moving uh, our forces into. They are uh, leaving good relations with local people up there. They're leaving solid uh, professional relationships with the Afghan units on the battlefield up there. So some real progress has been made. Both British and American commanders have been quick to stress that this is not a withdrawal, but that hasn't stopped the insurgents taking the opportunity to portray it as one. Former SAS commander Colonel Richard Williams says British troops never had the resources to finish the job. The context of the handover is that clearly Sangin is important and that Britain can't continue to do it and has therefore uh, had to hand it over to the United States. Those inadequate resources were known about in 2006. The force that went in in 2006, it's not a question of overstretch, overreached itself. Politicians, though, have concentrated on the work British troops have done, not what they could have achieved. David Cameron said they'd done a magnificent job. They have transformed Sangin, they have made a huge impact, but it's right to make this decision because we should be concentrating our forces where they can have the greatest possible impact. We should be sharing the burden fairly with our allies. That is what we're doing. And the British troops who've performed so incredibly in Sangin, uh, they did not give their lives in vain. They have done brilliant work. We will never forget what they did to make Afghanistan safer and that in time will make Britain safer too. As coalition troops marked another stage in their Afghanistan journey, the people of Afghanistan celebrated a landmark of their own. Independent parliamentary elections, the first to be held in the country with no direct help from foreign forces. More than 2,500 candidates stood last Saturday for 249 seats. It was estimated 5,000 polling stations opened on schedule, but about 1,000 didn't for security reasons. There were understandably still reservations. Afghan election officials say they've already received some 2,500 written complaints of fraud and irregularities. This voter said 10 candidates tried to buy his family's votes. We are going to sell the car. We are poor people, and politicians haven't done anything for us. If candidates are trying to buy votes, then why should we expect anything different from them? So we might as well sell the courts and earn some money. But there is hope among those who are trying to make a difference. Before the elections, we spoke to Hajid Salaj Ahmed, the district governor of Daman District in Kandahar province. He's realistic and knows they still have a long way to go. I think it'll take more time for the result of this election to really show. The government is still not working very well. We don't know what will happen because security is still not good. After the election, we will have a better idea where our country is going. Where the country goes will largely depend on whether the authorities can keep the insurgency under control. Unofficial figures suggest 17 people were killed on polling day itself, including three election workers, and there were hundreds of of reports of intimidation and violence as the Taliban tried to disrupt proceedings. On the one hand, the elections are a step in the right direction, but on the other, they're a demonstration of the determination of the enemy and just how far the country has to go. Kath Brazier reporting. Well, British Forces News Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio. Hello, Christopher. Let's Hello. start at the top of Kath's report there and the handover of Sangin to US control. Now, David Cameron's saying that what British troops have done in Sangin has made Afghanistan and the UK safer or will do long term. But was the job just too big for them? Yeah, well, what he's saying is not true. That's the first thing. What they've done in Sangid is exactly what he said. It's a better place than when they went. 
but it doesn't do for the rest of Afghanistan. Afghanistan war is unwinnable. It has always been unwinnable. If you go, as I was in recently in Washington, in uh, the State Department... Does anyone actually talk about winning the war anymore? Oh, yeah, anyway? they do, they do. If, if, you know, I was talking to somebody who'd been at the uh, President's uh, White House briefing, and they said to him, Mr President, we've got one half of this room, is basically saying we're, we're right in there, we ought to be doing it, it's the Petraeus way uh, of doing things. The other half of the room say, we can't win this one, Mr President. Don't forget you're a Democrat and you've got to go up for re-election. What, the, the thing that impressed him was that militarily, in the, in the figures we're talking about, of the soldiers we're talking about, people on the ground and in the air, no, you can't do it. What you can do, the CIA said we've got 3,200 operatives working in Afghanistan at the moment, also the UK Special Forces. Cruelly, they described it as thus, we're very good at throat slitting. We can throat slit a Taliban. That is the way that we can turn around and say we can bring this country under some sort of control, but never never under full control. Well, Chris Hughes is the Daily Mirror's defence correspondent. He's just returned from Afghanistan. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Um, Sangin has been described as hell on earth by some troops, and, and worse still, things I probably can't say on the radio. How do you think the troops will feel, though, now that they've handed over control of that area? Well, I, I listened to your um, report earlier, and I, I totally agree with the guy from 40 Commando who said that many troops will feel, may feel slightly hollow but feel a sense of pride in the state at which they live, they leave Sangin. Um, the progress there, um, despite all the claims by David Cameron, is glacial. That, that applies to the whole of Afghanistan, indeed, especially to Helmand. Um, 2007, uh, I was, I was in, in, in Sangin. Uh, the Royal Anglians uh, were, were trying desperately hard to fight through Sangin, which parts of which looked like Dresden then. It's progressively got more and more dangerous. In 2007, it wasn't called the most dangerous part of, of Afghanistan, or in, indeed in the world. Now it is. So we can see that there hasn't been any progress there, I don't believe. You win Sangin, it's always been said that, you know, Sangin is the prize in Helmand. Um, it's, what, it's the place that, that the Taliban have decided to make a stand for various economic and spiritual and cultural reasons. Mm. Um, it, it, it really is a, a terrible place. I mean, last time I was there was at Christmas, uh, handing out presents to troops. Two guys got killed just a few hundred yards outside the wire. You know, you don't go to Sangin and not hear bombs going off every few minutes, basically. It's, it's a bleak picture you're, you're painting yeah. there. Yeah. And from what you're saying, and from, generally from the knowledge out there, there's little chance that Sangin will be put under Afghan control, total Afghan control, at any time soon. Uh, but you have some positive news, don't you, from what you've been seeing in terms of the Afghan National Police Force? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was with... Um, uh, the week before last, I was with one Scots Guards and the uh, QRL in uh, Queen's uh, Royal Lancers in, in uh, Lashkagar, the capital of Helmand. And we saw them working alongside the newly formed Afghan National Police. These are not the ones who are corrupt, not the ones who, who we hope and tend to turn their, gun, their own guns on our, on our troops, as we saw last year. These are people who have been through fantastically uh, well-received um, uh, academies like the Helmand Police Training Centre, one of 80 throughout Afghanistan, which are processing ANP, Afghan National Police Officers, to be professional, to, 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 to learn how to save lives through uh, first aid, to, you know, yes, they're, they're taught how to, to kill people and, and how to, uh, you know, uh, basically do the, do the job of a kind of militia-style police officer in Afghanistan, but they're, they're, they are much more efficient, much more dedicated 
to the job. To a man, the ones that I interviewed have all got scars from having been tortured or shot by the Taliban at some stage in their careers. Uh, one British soldier said to me, these guys are basically uh, a sort of uh, r uh, militia, but one day we hope they'll be handing out parking tickets. I think that day is many decades away, to be honest with you. All right, Chris Hughes, Defence Correspondent at the Daily Mirror. Thank you very much. Um, Christopher Lee, turning to the Afghan election at the weekend, almost two-thirds of voters stayed away. Once again, corruption, there's been deaths, there have been all kinds of allegations of fraud. Um, doesn't look like progress, really, does it? Um, no, it doesn't look like progress, but is the fact that something happened at all is progress. But General Petraeus again said the security isn't right to have elections. Um, but I looked at that and thought to myself, well, two-thirds stayed away. In the regional elections in this country, two-thirds stay away. <laughs> you know, and we, nobody, gets, uh, nobody gets shot at. I think so you think voter interest is rather good in Afghanistan? Well, it's though. also a question of sort of vote early, vote often. But, I mean, you've got to actually understand that there is something going on. As much as I'm gloomy about it, something is going on which wasn't going on before. Whether that brings peace to Afghanistan, totally different matter. All right, Christopher, thank you. And um, stay here because we'll be uh, bringing uh, inside knowledge on the Defence Review in a moment. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, why GPs are being told how best to help our veterans and how a solar flare could plunge us into a technological black hole. When the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats agreed to form a coalition, their very different attitudes to Trident were brushed under the carpet. But the question of whether to renew Britain's nuclear deterrent could become the first serious rift between the parties. Trident was the subject of an emergency debate at the Lib Dems conference, and James Hurst was there for us. Uh, James, the disagreement over Trident was fudged in the coalition deal, uh, but some senior Lib Dems just won't let it go, will they? Absolutely, not just some senior Lib Dems. I think the party as a whole. I mean, this was an emergency motion chosen by a vote of party members. It came out top of everything else. NHS was in there, economy was in there. The coalition deal between the Conservatives and Lib Dems has them, as, as Nick Harvey put it, agreeing to disagree. They perhaps wouldn't call it a fudge, but it is certainly unresolved. Their compromise was a value-for-money test for Trident alone rather than putting it into the Strategic Defence and Security Review, which is what the Lib Dems wanted, and they still want. And I asked uh, the Armed Forces Minister, Lib Dem uh, Nick Harvey, what the difference is between putting it in the Strategic Defence Review and this value-for-money test. Really, all we're looking at in the value-for-money study is the current plan of how Trident should be replaced and whether you can get more value for money out of it. And I'm hopeful that that will result in a conclusion that we can in one or two specifics. What I think the, the motion is getting at is that the Strategic Defence Review at its heart should have looked at the case for renewing Trident on the same sort of scale and balanced that against the needs of the army in Afghanistan and the need to develop conventional forces in years to come. And al al although the VFM study is feeding into the review, it hasn't really put the issue at its heart, which is the biggest strategic decision facing us. One might argue it should have been. But doesn't that mean there is a fundamental difference between you and the Secretary of State inside the Ministry of Defence? It depends on your definition of fundamental. Uh, the coalition government is committed to keeping the nuclear deterrent going, to replacing it in due course. The distinction is whether or not it needs replacing on the same Cold War model that the existing Trident scheme was designed on in 1980 
And that is a difference, but in my view it's not necessarily all that fundamental. Now you can argue over the word fundamental. It is certainly an important difference. So James, long term, could a row over Trident tear the coalition apart, do you think? It doesn't have to, because they've agreed to disagree. But were it to come to a fight... Were there any strains in the coalition, it it could expose that. I think the the interesting thing is this suggestion that the decision, the main gate decision, could be delayed by a year, take it past an election in 2015. That could save both parties from having to fight over this. be interesting to see what you hear from the Conservatives on that idea at their conference. All right, James Hurst, thank you very much. Well, as things stand, Trident isn't part of the Strategic Defence and Security Review, but that hasn't stopped wild speculation on what cuts will be announced when it's finally made public. Well, this week, the Royal United Services Institute staged a conference on the review. Michael Codner is from RUSI and joins me in the studio. Welcome, Michael. Um, The lobbying on behalf of all the services has really stepped up in the last few weeks, but the final decisions are near, aren't they? Uh, They certainly are. The uh, conclusion of the review uh, has to tie in with the comprehensive spending review, so we're talking 20th of October. Uh, the decision process has been very compacted. Ministers are having to make decisions um, this month and the early part of next. There's still huge uncertainty as to what those decisions will be. An awful lot of gossip, of course, because now is the moment when the heads of the services are bargaining with um, with the Secretary of State and indeed with uh, the Prime Minister himself. A huge amount of gossip, you say. What kind of insights can you give us? Because we, we've heard only this week about, about the army and how General Sir David Richards may have saved or spared at least 20,000 jobs. What, what do you know? Well, I think uh, on the army, this is very much gossip, but uh, we're fairly clear that um, Liam Fox uh, is intending to hold a root and branch review of army structures, which could have big implications for the um, regimental system. And the so arms do you think that not the loss of regiments themselves, but perhaps just the, the, the regimental system within them? Well, r- regiments themselves could go, but that's hugely political, of course, and, and labels aren't necessarily the issue here. It's more a matter of, uh, of uh, reforming to the extent that you can get... Um, and this is the reason for it, uh, you can get better availability of troops in theatre than uh, is perceived to be the case presently. But over the numbers issue, I don't think that uh, the army is being ring-fenced at all over this. There has been a deal, I think, but the deal is more as to when those army cuts will come. There is still the question of whether it will be ultimately 20,000, but clearly it's not a good time at the moment when we're still in the middle of the surge in Afghanistan to start advertising that one's cutting numbers. And also, of course... uh, Uh, numbers uh, that are cut through redundancy programmes are more expensive than numbers that are cut over a longer period where it's generally a matter of not recruiting. Uh, Christopher Lee, do you think there are going to be any surprises in this review? And when do you actually think we're going to be getting some concrete information from Uh, it? Well, I'm sure you ever get concrete until you've actually got the paper. But I tell you what, watch the papers next Wednesday morning. Why is that? Because on Tuesday... Uh, there is a meeting of the National Security Council, which is chaired by the Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liam Fox, the Defence Secretary, and his mates will be going in front of them, and they'll be told what they've got to do. Not in detail, but they'll be told the sort of cuts they're going to make. Also watch the other guys that are there. You're going to find that the so-called ministers from the Welsh Assembly, the Northern Ireland Assembly, and the Scottish Assembly, here we're talking big, big, megabuck jobs. Mm. They're the people that are going to put their case. For example, the aircraft carriers. The Scots are going to be there, and they're going to be saying, you can't do that because we're just rebuilding Rosyth, etc., to do all this. There's a lot of money involved in this. Now, Wednesday morning, 
people who have come out on Tuesday night and they'll be telling the people in, in the newspapers, they'll say, yeah, listen, I think we're in trouble here and that's where you're going to get the first of the leaks. So Wednesday morning, good day to buy a paper, listen to uh, BFPS News. So, Michael, you, talk, you talked about the army. Uh, any sort of very broad uh, insights you can give us on the other two forces? Well, it looks, as far as the Navy is concerned, that they will lose 3,000, which is um, a, an awful lot. It's 10% because the Navy is uh, considerably the smallest of the services. Uh, three frigates could be laid up, and I think that may be, and this is my guess, part of a deal over preserving the two carriers. Um, This is an old argument that you can always rebuild your frigate force, but once you get loose core capabilities, submarines, um, uh, flying off carriers and amphibious capability, it goes. The RAF, um, probably down to two uh, fighter attack um, uh, aircraft uh, types, and that would be Eurofighter Typhoon and then the future Joint Strike Fighters, so Tornado goes and Harrier, but the, the timing of all that, and the RAF, of course, will also lose um, a percentage of its personnel. All right, Michael Codner, thank you. I'll speak to you later. This is SITREP on BFBS. The military covenant says ex-service personnel should get priority non-emergency health care. But is that really happening? Research suggests few GPs know how to tr- best to treat veterans and often don't even know if their patients have been in the forces. Well, now the Royal British Legion, Combat Stress and the Royal College of GPs have launched an advice service for doctors. For SITREP, Toby Sadler reports. Paul McClintock had been serving with the 1st Battalion Royal Green Jackets for three years. His army career was going well and he was planning on making the military his future. Then in 1996, Paul injured his back in a training accident. But it was two years before anyone offered him anything more than painkillers. The medical treatment that I was offered was nothing really because they just didn't believe me at the end of the day. Um, If if they'd have believed me, then I probably would have got what I needed. And when they did find out what the problem was... Then I got told then if they'd have found it on day one, they could have fixed it. Paul now spends much of his life in a wheelchair, but he knows if he'd been seen earlier, life would have been so different. A recent survey of 500 GPs in England and Wales found that around half didn't know much about priority care for veterans, and around a third knew nothing at all. It was that realisation which prompted these new guidelines to be drawn up. It all came about thanks to work by the Royal College of General Practitioners, the charity Combat Stress and the Royal British Legion. Sue Freeth is the Legion's Director of Welfare. GPs are very important people in the veterans and their dependents' lives. They're, the mo- they're the ind- only, possibly the only independent professional they may have contact with, and they are really their advocates in terms of their health. While this new approach is focused on GPs, the latest research suggests many veterans don't tell their doctor they are ex-military. The message here is that for the system to work, both sides need to be a little more open. Toby Sadler with that report. Well, Dr Rob Hicks is on the line. He's a GP who has treated veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Dr Hicks, thanks for joining us. Uh, before you got to know more about the forces, how much did you know about veterans' right to have priority non-emergency care and how to access it for them as a GP? Well, the simple answer to that is before I became involved uh, with the British forces, I knew nothing at all about the um, advantage and, and the right to access care more, more swiftly. So this is why I think the, the new guide for general practitioners that's been produced by the partnership between the Royal College of General Practitioners the British, uh, and the Royal British Legion 
um, and indeed combat stress is, is so vital because they found in their survey that I, I wouldn't have been alone in, in not knowing that priority treatment was available for veterans. And, of course, for a veteran, a GP is often the first point of contact when they have a health problem. How important is a GP in actually helping out in that situation? How much a difference can they make? Well, I think we in general practice can make a huge difference. Um, Obviously, the first thing is for us to know that the uh, the, the priority treatment scheme exists. Um, The other thing, of course, is that often we don't know that somebody is a veteran and maybe we are you know, not thinking to ask the question, have you been involved in the services um, in in the past? And what's fascinating is it's true to say that many veterans uh, don't sort of readily volunteer the fact that they have um, been in the services. So I think what this does is it raises the point that GPs need to be asking the question, but also the veterans shouldn't hold back in informing the GPs. Um, And if if a GP doesn't know anything about the priority treatment for veterans, then veterans themselves shouldn't feel awkward about saying, do you know this scheme exists? I'd like to make use of it. Because the GP is often the first port of call. He he or she coordinates um, care. And to be able to do that efficiently um, and swiftly and indeed effectively, um, we need to have this sort of information readily available. And what seems incredible in that situation is that there is not an automatic transfer of medical records into the NHS. No, I mean, medical records and the transfer over the years has been a bit of a stumbling block for people, whether they've you know, been in the services or, or whether they've simply been civilians. Certainly with computerisation, that process is speeding up um, and hopefully we'll see you know, that improve in the future because, of course, it's difficult to be in a situation where you've got a patient in front of you and you don't have their previous history, their, their medical records. And they may know some of their medical records, but we're all human and we all forget certain things. And sometimes it's the, it's the important things um, that perhaps get pushed into the subconscious. And from your own experiences, what are the biggest problems in treating veterans now? I think the problems, obviously, there are the physical problems where people have suffered quite significant injuries. But I think one of the challenges we have is to uncover um, hidden emotional problems. And that's where I would say to people not to feel embarrassed or ashamed about feeling that you may be under stress, anxious, you may be suffering with depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it, It is nothing to be feel guilty or ashamed of. And the sooner that these problems can be brought to the surface, then, of course, the, the, the sooner they can be diagnosed and, most importantly, they can be treated. Dr. Rob Hicks, thanks for your time. Red on the Forces Station. BFBS. Now, it sounds like the plot of a particularly far-fetched science fiction movie. A surge of solar energy sweeps across the Earth, causing blackouts around the world, cutting off vital communications and leaving Britain vulnerable to attack. But it's apparently being taken seriously enough for the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, to attend a conference on the threat and how to deal with it. He's also worried rogue nations or even terror groups could achieve the same result by deploying an electromagnetic pulse or EMP weapon. Tim Stevens is the cyber warfare analyst at King's College London. Tim, thanks for your time today. Um, what is this solar surge exactly and, and what would happen if it, it hit Earth? 
Uh, well, the phenomenon that uh, Liam Fox is concerned about is uh, solar flares, which are explosions in the sun's atmosphere that um, above and beyond the normal output of radiation would produce radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum and flares that basically pulse out across the solar system and, of course, they would reach Earth. Now, there's a variety of radio waves, gamma rays, all sorts of fantastic things, but the possible implications of this would be they would effectively knock out electric and electronic uh, infrastructure. Um, so that would include, you know, the things that we come to rely on every day, food, water distribution, emergency services, defense, etc., etc. And how likely is it that this could be something that could be man-made by rogue states or by terrorists, for example? Threats coming from man-made sources is very, very small indeed. So you, you, it, absolutely inconceivable. Do you think uh, that the Defence Secretary then is uh, barking up the wrong tree? Well, it's not inconceivable in the sense that it's technically possible, but given that um, <clears throat> you know, there are two ways of doing it. One, you explode a nuclear weapon in a high atmosphere. All right, Tim Stevens from King's College, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Michael Codner from Rusi is still here, and, of course, Christopher Lee's in the studio. Um, so the, the, the man-made threat is, is nothing to worry about, Christopher. I think it also, it's always something to worry about. Um, Listen, we do everything now by IT, don't we? Communications, everything at all. Years ago, we recognised this, 20 years ago. I was in a team at Easingworld, uh, the Home Office Defence College, and we had to decide what would happen if there was a nuclear explosion over a place called Naptonshire. Mm. And one of the things we said, listen to your uh, transistor radio and we will tell you what to do next. And then we sort of dawned on us that EMP of slightest EMP would knock out those transistor radios. Chaos. And that was the big problem. I mean, someone like Michael's, who's done it for real in a ship, knows this better than I do. Michael, just tell us a bit, a bit about the effect, the, the kind of havoc that could be wreaked on the armed forces and on our defence system if communications were knocked out. Well, the, the issue is um, that uh, over recent years in particular, we've got more and more dependency on networking through electronic systems, um, and satellites, etc., um, of uh, linking together our weapons, uh, our um, the information that we have about the world in which we're operating and, um, and command and control, direction. Once this breaks down, uh, we've built this dependency. What we need to be able to do is to make sure we can work without it. And uh, even though the EMP may be a long way away, we must be ready right. for it. And there we must leave it. Michael Codner, Christopher Lee, thank you very much. My thanks to both of you. And don't forget, there will be another SITREF uh, sit coming up at this time next week. You can catch up with anything you've missed online at bfbs.com slash SITREF. You can also subscribe to the programme as a podcast and read profiles of the team. There are also links to British Forces News. It's updated 24-7 by our team of reporters around the world. We'll be back, as I said, with another edition of SITREF at the same time next week. Until then, from me, Kate Jobo. Goodbye. On DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK, online and on air around the world, this is the Forces Station. BFBS. Yeah.